From Buffalo, Toronto, Public Media and WBFO, this is Buffalo What's Next Producer Picks. Highlights of important interviews from our weekday discussion on race, education, and the community. Today, Daisy Ball from the Buffalo Federation of Neighborhood Centers on the work she does and what it has done for her. It shaped my, my values uh, in regards to how we serve in community and especially in communities of color. Also ahead, Terry Alford from the Michigan Street African American Heritage Corridor Commission. So when you look at our, our Heritage Corridor, it sort of is emblematic of about 185 years of the African American experience. From her grandmother's home on Riley Street, Tisha Parker runs Rooted in Love. We would show up and you know she would have a random person sleeping in her extra room because that's the type of person that she was so it's just it was such a beautiful way to cement her legacy. More about her work with the city's underprivileged and homeless coming up. I'm Angelie Preston. Thanks for being with us. We begin with a program you might have missed. Jay Moran talking with Daisy Ball from BFNC, the Buffalo Federation of Neighborhood Centers, and their HOPE program to help seniors. Let's first of all talk about uh, an element of this that you brought to my attention, that some time ago you did a, a, a survey mm-hmm. of senior what the seniors wanted, mm-hmm. right? This is something that you did organically mm-hmm. and found out about your community. What was the response? Senior centers were, you know, were typically, you know, a place for socialization where you could come, play bingo, uh, play cards, have lunch, things of that nature. And so um, funders were saying that's all well and good, but we don't see tangible outcomes on how really? this improves okay. improves wellness. And right. so um, we knew that we were going to have to shift in order to make sure that our center remained viable. And so with that being said, we also wanted to know what the seniors themselves wanted. But on top of that, we wanted to make sure that we provide what the seniors need. And so and so we asked the question. You know, we did several community meetings, um, open meetings with the seniors to do surveys and, and say, okay, what are some of the things that you're looking for? And out of that, came housing was number one. Okay. A hundred percent of participants said that they needed uh, access to affordable housing. Uh, the next thing that came out 100%. of that- 100%. 100%. of all senior surveyed said housing is an issue. Okay. Uh, the next component was access to transportation, access to health care, access to um Uh, food access, uh, healthy and nutritious foods, which is a big one because most of the population that I had at the time at our center were type 2 diabetics. But Mm. the food donations that we have come in and understand we love them, but their stuff is not good for them. We get the rolls, we get the pastries, we get the donuts, all the stuff that's good, but again, is not going to help if you're type 2 diabetic, right? Um, And so uh, food access and and, and veggies, uh, getting more fresh produce and vegetables for 
us was a, a big initiative. And then on top of that, uh, they wanted a place where they could come in community to socialize that would be state of the art, you know, a, a senior center where they would have, you know, if they needed assistance with their activities for daily living, such as bathing or being able to do laundry, those kind of things, that they had a place that they could go where those things would be offered. And so we took all of that information and really, you know, sat at the table with a lot of community um, uh, organizations and, and partners and said, you know, this is the problem. How do we fix this? What can we do to address this concern? And so for our agency, that's how the BFNC Westminster Commons was born. I want to talk about the Westminster Commons, but I just one element of the mm-hmm. of the survey there that you talked about, the, like you said, the fresh mm-hmm. produce and mm-hmm. such. And we've heard a lot about that since 514, haven't we? When mm-hmm. uh, you know, tops closed and all of a sudden uh, a, a major source mm-hmm. of that type of uh, product was not available to, to mm-hmm. folks. How did you, how did your organization address that need? What what have you done? Been able, have you, I guess, have since you been successful? Since 514 no, or no, before Even before that, have you been successful in addressing that need? Oh, yeah. Okay. So we were doing that work prior to 514. And please know, it was a tragedy in our community. And, you know, we were patrons of, of the TOPS on, on on Jefferson for years. We uh, th- we shopped there for our senior programs. They sponsored a lot of the events that we did with so our you really, seniors. So you really felt the closure we as felt, much as anybody. Yeah. We felt it just as much as anyone else. And so, um, but to say, you know, in terms of how we addressed it, out of that needs assessment, the first thing we did was talk with um, the Buffalo Niagara Medical um, Campus. They helped us uh, launch our grassroots garden which was at the ah, Moot Center. Okay. We have 12 boxes, uh, and this was pre-pandemic, uh, where we had you know fresh produce and master gardeners that were coming, and we we you know provided and supplemented uh, vegetables for our seniors in our lunches. But then on top of that, they had free produce to take home with them. You're able to produce that much. Yeah, 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 yeah. We had, and and the crops were beautiful. We had greens, we had cucumbers, we had peppers of all kinds of varieties and tomatoes. Oh my gosh. You know, all these just wonderful uh, produce and the seniors loved it. You know, and not only were we able to supplement the nutrition program that we offered at the center, but seniors also were able to take vegetables home. So, and that, and that garden has been in existence for about four or five years now. So again, you know, we wanted to make sure that we were addressing that concern. The another thing that we did is that we also uh, partnered with uh, uh, Urban Fruits and Veggies, um, Allison Dahoney and her crew, mm. uh, to provide uh, fresh fruits and vegetables uh, through the mobile market. We, uh, The Massachusetts Avenue Project was also uh, one of the first markets that were launched at the Moot Center when the Moot was open. And, you know, we have been consistently doing that throughout. Um, now with our new location, Feed More Western New York has been our partner to provide um, the seasonal farmers market. But then on top of that, we also have been working to secure grant funding to be able to fight to provide groceries uh, and fresh produce bags to seniors uh, through the winter months for 12 weeks. Uh, another program that we did during the pandemic was in partnership with the Journey Church, uh, Pastor Art Hall and his crew. And, uh, you know, they called me up when the pandemic first started and said, hey, we want to make sure that your seniors are able 
able to get groceries. What can we do? And next thing I know, they set up the Groceries to Seniors Initiative. BFNC became a partner and we started doing grocery bag deliveries to seniors with fruit, fresh fruits and vegetables and then a hot meal. And they got that every week during the pandemic. And now that program still exists. And it's uh, one delivery uh, uh, per month. So uh, as you were talking there and the, the list kind of makes this, uh, mm-hmm. I think, an obvious answer. But I'll ask the question anyway. You said early on, funders want to see results. Mm-hmm. They're pleased with the results. Yes, they're they're pleased with the results, but honestly, we can still do more. I mean, I've, it's sad that 514 brought this issue to the forefront, uh, but again, there's still much more that we can do. Now, what we've done since 514, we've created the You Matter Transportation Fund, and uh, through the You Matter Transportation Fund, we pr- we're providing cab rides to seniors to be able to get to the grocery store, and then I do van trips uh, through at the Westminster Building for uh, uh, senior groups to be able to go and do their shopping. And what we do is I don't limit it to just the grocery store, because okay. again, Seniors, uh, transportation is a barrier. Like everybody, we want to do we lots wanna of do, things. We wanna, so what I try to do is that it's always majority rules because, you know, my, wow. seniors, okay. my seniors take me to task. So, you know, I, I bet they do. I don't want to make the decisions for them. So what we do is, uh, you know, I say, hey, this is the day we're going shopping. Where does everyone want to go? And it's majority rules. And okay. so the parameters are that, you know, it has to be within a 30-minute ride of our center. So that allows us to go to the first-tier suburb. And, so, and that's what we've been doing. And the other part of it is is providing access to other stores, right? Uh, the tops on, on on the boulevard on Maple is wonderful. And even though they've redone our tops on Jefferson and we're very thrilled for that, uh, it's still a, a certain, it's size limited, right? There's only so much square footage. Right. So at the bigger stores, there may be more options. And for me, options are important for our seniors. Um, Trader Joe's, some of our seniors have never been able to go to Trader Joe's. Now that's an, a portal that's been open for them. Um, going well, to I'm the just course. curious, what's the response then? I mean, like you said, if they... Oh, they love it. They love it. Um, But what's needed for us to keep those kind of things going are more volunteers. Volunteers are, are really... Um, an essential component of offering any type of senior programming um, because volunteers can help with driving, helping just organize some of these things. Um, because again, uh, senior programs are not the most funded programs. And so we rely heavily on volunteers. And But the seniors love it. Are you kidding? Yeah. If, if we could go somewhere else ever, new every day, they would love that. <laughs> you know. <laughs> with us is uh, Daisy Ball. She is uh, with the BFNC. A lot of issues here to talk about. The one that you did talk about at the beginning, like you said, 100% mm-hmm. on that survey, mm-hmm. housing, access to affordable housing. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about how you and the BFNC went about addressing this particular need. Uh, we basically said, okay, well, what can we do? And we started meeting again with uh, community partners to say, uh, we want to be able to provide a housing component, but we, it's not just housing. We wanted to build a complex for aging in place. Now, typically, um, what we see in our in our suburbs and whatnot, that there's more land and, and more areas to be able to do those kind right. of things. Um, and so what we found was talking with a lot of the long-term care providers, the nursing home providers, um, the insurance providers, the folks that do this work. We said, if we were able to do an aging in place in city of Buffalo, what would it look like. Mm. And the difference is, is that we didn't necessarily want to be the, the provider to do it all. We recognize what we're good at, right? We're good at providing um, support services and then finding the right partners to link with our seniors. And so um, out of that, we wanted to have 
continue our activities program, make it a structured day program, but then get a healthcare partner to come in and, and provide healthcare. Get a, a partner to come in and provide um, uh, financial assistance and entitlement assistance. Get a partner that would be able to provide transportation and, and someone that would be able to assist us in developing housing for seniors. Out of that, you know, it was the, the uh, Westminster Commons was born. Uh, 84 unit apartment building uh, that has access to all of these other services that are available in the West Westminster Community House, which is right next door to the apartments. And so seniors are able to access all of our different services at the Westminster Community House and, you know, and they're not separated from their families. Uh, what we found as we were going into the surveys, especially as seniors had increased need for long-term care supports, um, they would be separated if they ended up in the hospital and had to go to rehab. Typically, the rehab facilities are not in Buffalo. They're out in the suburban areas. If um, they're low-income families, transportation could be an issue. They're separated from their families. And so one of the things that we wanted to do was work with Erie County, work with City of Buffalo, to try and make sure that our seniors can remain in community where they came from okay. with all of these additional supports. So... Um, that's what this iteration of aging in place looks like for us in partnering with the Community Health Center of Buffalo, in partnering with um, Erie County Senior Services, in partnering with uh, uh, Mari, uh, Mari Fox of Soul Candy Yoga and partnering with. I just have to jump in with this. Mm -hmm. you, you dress a certain way today because it's yoga day. Oh yes, it is yoga. <laughs> yes, I, I, I'm in my my yoga wear because today is Wellness Day at, at our center, and so yes, we will be having yoga. So today. seniors will be participating. In oh, yoga. and they love and and we call it Soul Candy Yoga because it's all soul music, and you know they they I have to say they get down. I see <laughs> I see walkers getting flown uh, strung to the side. I see seniors who you know who may have limited mobility. All of a sudden, it's like they don't need their cane anymore. They're able to to do certain things. And so that movement is so important. And so, you know, we're really excited that Mari um, has, has just embraced us and she's just a fireball of energy and right. she, and she, she gets our population and, and they look for her, you know, they're like, it's yoga day. We're ready. <laughs> and, and, and that's what we want to do. Sure. You know, our, our, our day program is BFNC life services, BFNC life center services. And that's what we're about. We're about increasing longevity with our seniors, increasing the quality of life, enhancing their experience, knowing that there's still so much more life to live no matter what stage we're in. Uh, also providing caregiver supports, which is huge. You know, our caregivers do so much and a lot of times seniors are caregivers to one another. Right. And so making sure that we have programs and supports in place to be able to address those concerns in a number of different ways, that's what we try to do. It, you must have, you must be getting to know a lot of the seniors that, oh, that yeah. come in. Do you worry about them? What what what, uh, what are your concerns for them? Things cost so much more. So seniors are making tough choices on whether or not they're getting their medication or they're buying food. Oh no. No one should have to make that choice. Right. You know what I'm saying? That that hurts me when I see those kind of choices having to be made. Not being able to participate in a program. To give you an example, you know, we went last night to go see Tina, and we, uh, uh, through through funding, we were able to cover a majority of the cost for the ticket, but there was still a nominal cost of $20. And it's a struggle for some seniors to even pay that. And, uh, you know, I finally just had to say, you know what? Nope, we're going to do this. And so uh, seniors 
seniors being able to go and participate and not having to worry about how they're going to pay for something, you know, those are the things that concern me. Their health, being able to have access to specialists that are not in our, uh, you know, outside of their uh, reach, you know, by trans- limits of transportation, you know, have bringing more f- services to them versus trying to get them out to other services elsewhere, you know, those things are important. So, you know, finding the right community partners that want to engage with us and help us, that to me, that's the most important thing. You were talking about the um, uh, Westminster mm-hmm. uh, Community House, mm-hmm. a historic part of, of Buffalo. It, actually, if you read, if you go to bfnc.org, mm-hmm. great history about settle, the settlement house movement here, uh, the how it t- touched Buffalo and how it has transformed mm-hmm. throughout the years. But it's it's an interesting element of this that that community house is well over a century old. It is, and, and yet so it's still functional. It's yes, it's still functional, and we are really. If you've ever been to the Westminster Community House, it's located at four nineteen Monroe Street. We are looking for you because we know there are a lot of rich stories about the Westminster Building. Uh, um, you know, every day I hear seniors saying, "I used to come here and play basketball. I used to come here and do uh, knitting with my mom. I used to come." here and do other things. And in fact, yesterday I met a senior for the first time who said that this center raised her, that the, the, that she literally, when, when she was not at home, she was there participating in all the things that were offered by the Westminster Presbyterian Church, um, who founded the Westminster um, Community House. Um, in, in, the, in the 80s, Westminster Presbyterian, the Neighborhood House Association merged, and that's how we became BFNC, and that, that's how we became in possession of that building. And so I'm just thrilled to say that, you know, the, the core legacy of what the Westminster Community House was, which was to serve the people, provide opportunities to congregate, come together, whether it was for meals, whether it was for meetings, whether it was for uh, after-school programs, helping youth, helping seniors, helping community. That's what we're still doing now. Daisy, though, your um, your personal story weaves through the BFNC. Uh, would you mind sharing it with our audience? Sure. Well, I started in 90, 1997. I was 24 years old and didn't really have a formal education, and I was a single mom. And uh, they took a chance on me. They hired me to be the administrative assistant. It was the first time that I saw so many people of color who look like me in professional roles and in leadership roles. And so uh, the the vision or value statement at the time of the organization was unlocking potential and enriching lives of others. And I'm truly a product of that. You know, my leadership at the time, they they took a chance on me. They, they encouraged me to go to school. They made schedule accommodations for me to do that. They allowed me when I didn't have daycare that I could bring my daughter to, to work and, 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 and still do my day. Um, and, and, and I've gone on to do some great things. Uh, there came a time where I had to say, you know what, I, I have to stop working so I can really pursue graduate school and, 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 and all of those different things. And I've had some really great experiences and, and BFNC always stayed with me. My core work ethic was developed at BFNC. How so? Because it truly taught me what the meaning of service was. 
And so when I went on to do other things, it, I always asked, how does the community benefit? What, how do we make sure we're giving back? As I went on and, and, and to, to graduate school and worked at UB, I kept asking that question. What, what are some of the things that we can do? Uh, when I came back to community and worked at the Service Collaborative, again, uh, connecting with BFNC, we collaborated uh, to provide services to community. And then, you know, my mentor, who then became executive director, he says, you know what? You, you've you gone out here and you've done a lot. It's time to come home. <laughs> we have something for you to do. And 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 lo and behold, it was uh, uh, become the director of the senior program at the Moot Center. And what's so interesting is that uh, the I, I came back to where it all began. I was a, a secretary in the basement of the Moot Center. Now I came back and I'm running the Moot Center. <laughs> I, I tell any and everyone, you know, I, it takes... Just like they say it takes a village to raise a child, it takes really a sound mentorship in order for you to get to the next phase of where you need to be. And BFNC has done that. Going back to that time, you're the the single mom, Mm -hmm. you're coming in there. Did you have an idea that you could be this, somebody who does this, went, got this advanced schooling and became a, a director like this and helping so many people out? You know, I, it's funny you asked that question. At the time when I first started, no, I, I, but I saw the possibilities. Okay. The question for me was, how do I get there? You know, and, and again, um, when you're being exposed to so many new things, one, you have to have confidence. And sometimes... You had confidence? I I. I did in, in some areas and I did it in others. And that's where mentorship comes in, right? Ah. Because then that's where you get the push, <laughs> right? Like, no, you can do this. It's okay. You're going to You're do it. You're going to do it, right? <laughs> right, right? But having folks that can help push you and see things in you that you may not see in yourself to be able to get to that next phase. And I have to honestly say, I've been very fortunate in that regard. And I take that very seriously. And I also make sure I'm mentoring and I'm pushing and doing the same thing that was given to me to others and, and being able to provide that opportunity. Um, and, and so what I would say is, you know, BFNC has poured into me and I have a lot of fidelity to my organization. I could say I'm a cheerleader sure. <laughs> for well, BFNC. I think we've got but, that. As, but aside <laughs> from that, um, it also, again, it, it, it shaped my, uh, my values uh, in regards to how we serve in community and especially in communities of color. Um, I also know collaboration is important and working with or- other organizations and like-minded individuals and then also folks that don't think like us and, and, and trying to figure out how we can work together to do good for others. And so, and that can come out in a number of different ways. And so uh, BFNC and along with all of my other uh, career services and things that I've done over over the years have really shown me that there's more than one way to improve a light bulb. Oh, oh <laughs> nice. I like that. I wasn't sure we are going to go with that metaphor. Yeah. But then I'm going to ask you this then. BFNC offered you mentorship. You found it. It helped you. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's other opportunities inside the BFNC. But overall, for the East Side community, Mm -hmm. is there enough? Is there enough mentorship? Are there enough that can help people who might find themselves in circumstances like you were in uh, 20 years ago? Well, I I would say there's never enough mentorship, you know, because, again, Though it's mentorships is also about building relationships, and so uh, you have to have the time 
to be able to do that. And if you are someone who is giving of your time, sometimes you can be stretched thin, right? So we need more people out here doing that kind of work. And I would say outside of mentorship, it's development. It's leadership development, pulling out the leadership potential in others. And so uh, for me, that was recently through the Oshai Foundation, through the Karen Spaulding Fellowship for Leaders of Color. That really, for me, was a transformational experience. Okay, how so? It, it, it really allowed me to take a look back. And, and one, uh, they use a, a, a tool called the 360-degree leadership model. And so basically what that is is they send a survey out to your peers, your, your colleagues, uh, your, your employers, just a number of different folks in, in, your, in your circles. And they ask a series of survey questions, things of that nature, and then they go over those um, outcomes with you. But aside from that, it allows you to really think about your purpose. What are the outcomes you're trying to do, not just in, in, in your professional life, but in your personal life? And then what is your process in getting there? And so for me, being able to go through all those things with a group of folks who are just so dedicated um, to community and the, and, the, and the work that they do. And what I was saying earlier before we got on, on, on air was that, you know, when we're doing this work, a lot of times we, we lose sight of our impact, right? We're just, we're getting up, we're getting out and saying, okay, this is what we have to do sure. for the day. Sure. But this allows time for that self-reflection to be able to say, wow, okay, this is what we've accomplished or what I've accomplished. And this is really where I'm trying to go next and always thinking about the what's next and having, having folks that you can bounce your thoughts, your ideas in a safe space to be able to do that, process that out. You know, I'm not sure if somebody put a, a survey like that in front of me, if I could answer the mm-hmm. word purpose. Mm-hmm. What, what, I'm curious, can I cheat off your sheet? What did you put down? Purpose. Well, my purpose is to help organizations increase capacity. Right now, it's within BFNC. You know, I have programs that are getting off the ground, and and my goal is to make sure that we have sufficient funding, that we have uh, 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 we're making the out the outreach that we need to make in order to serve the community who needs us the most. But on top of that, I'm also in ministry. I'm a minister, and for me, it's very important that faith based organizations also have access to these tools and resources to be able to grow, not just in their ministries, but in helping community. We have a lot of issues happening in our city, and uh, faith-based organizations are increasingly becoming involved in trying to figure out, you know, how do we provide housing? How do we make sure that food uh, uh, communities have food? How do we make sure that our kids have good after-school programs and things of that nature? And there are huge organizations in our city that are doing this work, but we know that there has to be more intentional collaborations around this um, in a number of different arenas. And so um, to answer your question earlier that you said about mentorship, um, is there enough of it? Again, these are ways to be involved. It's not just about traditional one-on-one, person-to-person, but it also could be larger organizations mentoring smaller ones as well. So for me, it's about connecting those dots for for folks and, and making sure we're all at the table together. Daisy Ball. This is Buffalo What's Next producer picks, highlights from our daily discussion on our shared humanity. Up next, Terry Alford from the Michigan Street African American Heritage Corridor with Dave Debo. 
They've launched a strategic action plan. It's more than really just that archway that you've probably seen or the Michigan Avenue Baptist Church. They have a lot of plans on tap to develop and recognize Buffalo's African-American history, especially in that area, making that area kind of a, a tourist destination. Terry, thanks for being here. Welcome. It's good to be here, Dave, and thank you for having me. Part of the reason I think why I wanted to have you on today is for the past four weeks on PBS, Henry Louis Gates Jr. has uh, been presenting a series on PBS called Making Black America. The idea is that there are spaces that were formed by blacks from from even as far back as antebellum days all the way up to the civil rights movement. Um, black spaces where they could network, socialize, and, and even, I guess, in an unlimited way, be independent or at least to some degree free of uh, the discrimination that was around there. Do such places exist here still today? Oh, sir, absolutely they do. Um, uh, I'm a huge fan of the good Dr. Henry Louis Gates, as you know, Dave. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he, one of the things that we pride ourselves in with our Heritage Corridors the, the great stories that come with it that's attached or connected to individuals, especially individuals that were connected to social, uh, certain social institutions or organizations, fraternal orders. And that holds true even with our corridor, with the history of the African-American experience in the city of Buffalo. So when you look at our, our heritage corridor, uh, Michigan Street, which is about 3.5 miles of it, uh, it sort of is emblematic of about 185 years of the African-American experience. Yes, they still do exist. Uh, it's emblematic of the Michigan Street Baptist Church, and it especially includes the Colored Musicians Club sure. uh, right across the street. And I have to tell you, Dave, if you haven't been this part of the city, they're in basically steps away from each other. And I like to tell people when I do presentations that – you know, in many cases, these were basically like three degrees of separation. Started with the church, with folks coming out of the church and starting all these other institutions that begat other institutions along the corridor. I think the gate's premise is that they were places, again, outside of the white gates, places where people could network, where they could almost work to try and be independent of the discrimination that was otherwise rampant outside those doors. Absolutely. Uh, so examples of that starts with the church, for instance. The, the, in the African-American community, in, in, in terms of our culture, and not much different than other cultures, it starts with the church, you know, yeah. uh, where people congregate and worship. Uh, but it, the church is more than that. It becomes more than that. It becomes a, a social institution of discussion and learning and networking. And so when we talk about the Michigan Street Baptist Church, you know, and, you know, uh, these, those individuals that uh, frequented that church, they were members of the Masons and the Eastern Stars, the Phyllis, Phyllis Wheatley Club. Uh, they were uh, members of, uh, in those days, the first semblances of social justice organizations in the guise of people like, or individuals like Mary Talbert, who herself was a social justice champion, women's rights, civil rights champion. Uh, so when you talk about these relationships, these networks, at that church, right next to the church is where uh, Mary Talbert lived, and she and uh, Pastor Reverend Nash uh, entertained great uh, national uh, 
greats of the day, advocates and champions of civil rights and social justice, including people like W.E.B. Du Bois. And it was at her home where they, along with W.E.B. Du Bois and other national greats the of the day, movement. they created the Niagara Movement. When you look at Reverend Nash's wife, her brother, uh, Raymond Jackson, uh, founded the symbolist of the union, the Black U- Musicians Union, because black musicians weren't accepting the white unions. So they started their own out of necessity. And okay? that became the Colored Musicians Club. And that became the Colored Musicians Club. So, again, these are examples of great stories of especially structures that don't exist anymore, but still hold the same power and importance in our in our community. In our, and when I say our heritage, not just African-American heritage, but all of our heritage, if you call yourself Buffalonian, Uh, I'd like to also mention further north up the street from these iconic places that don't exist anymore was the Mission Street YMCA, which was founded by Reverend Nash and some other leaders of the day. Um, And for some, it holds as much reverence as the church does. Uh, African-Americans that were migrating from the north after Civil Civil War during antebellum days uh, and right into the early parts of the industrial revolution in our city, if you will. Uh, uh, The first place they stopped was at the YMCA because that's where they were given lodgings and things that they sort of figured Mm -hmm. it out. And at that place, they were given and provided networks and support and all types of things uh, that allowed them to be successful residents of the city. And to (laughs) some degree, this again is part of, I think, the Gates premise, but, but maybe yours. To some degree, these places existed outside the white gaze so to speak. And that's the great story about the stories, storytelling that uh, uh, Dr. Henry Lewis Gates is, is, is incorporating here. That's the message that he keeps drumming in that uh, out of necessity, uh, our, our, our people had to do these things. And it wasn't exclusive, okay? They were always very, as a people, we've always been very inclusive. But just out of necessity, we had to create our own networks because they weren't networks that were created for us. Uh, and, you know, when we look at the unfortunate events of 514, you know, this past summer, that, you know, that casts a, a magnifying glass, as you know, Dave, on those social ills that still, yeah. uh, that we as people still face. You know, as a result of, of that, I think was sometimes what we lose, like any other organizations, especially with young people, is really explaining the importance and the reasons why, you know, it's important to have these linkages and these networks. Uh, it's not so, so much out of just survival. It's just out of necessity and out of, you know, the pride that was instilled in us long ago by our forefathers and foremothers that if we don't do it for ourselves, there's no one else going to be out there to do it for us. I'm, I'm reminded of the uh, Shirley Chisholm quote, if they don't give you a seat at the table, Bring your own chair. chair. (laughs) And in a lot of ways, that's what this was. Uh, Excluded from society at large, excluded from white society. Let's create our own community. Mm -hmm. And we still um, we still struggle with that. You know, great thing with with what we're doing with the Michigan Street African-American Heritage Corridor. And you mentioned about our strategic action plan that we have great pride in is we developed. We spent a year developing this plan. I think one of the more important. proud things that I am in terms of being a part of the development of that plan is uh, we spent a year you know, uh, building consensus amongst people in the community itself. And this is well before 514 mm. uh, occurred. Uh, 
And the reason for that is there's been plans on the past in our corridor and in uh, east side of you know east side of Buffalo, uh, but they really didn't gain any traction because there was no synergy, no funding, but more importantly, no community no com- community support. And so the reason why we spent a lot of time consistent building, you know, again emblematic of what our forefathers foremothers did with creating these networks and opportunities to to talk and discuss things, is to allow for folks in the community garner some ownership out of a plan that they feel they helped create. The whole point of this investment is to hopefully use this as a means of spurring economic development in all these corridors. And if we do that, then you see rapid improvement, hopefully, of the east side that has been long marginalized and ignored uh, with this type of opportunity. Is the goal to have someone from Cleveland, Boulder, Colorado, wherever, say, I want to learn about African-American history. Buffalo has some cool sites. Let's come to Buffalo. Or is the goal more, I'm visiting Niagara Falls. Buffalo has a cool city hall. Oh, let's go over here to the Michigan Street Corridor as well. Both of all that. Let me ask about the first one, though. You really think that we are enough of a destination to draw people to Buffalo specifically for your corridor? Well, I'll tell you, I'll answer it this way. We already are. We, we don't even have our capital, our capital projects, which is uh, uh, expansion, stabilization of our historic buildings right now. Um, uh, even despite the challenges of a pandemic, you know, what we found with our research, with our uh, metrics, is people have continued to come to Buffalo, in particular to this corridor, with their families from as far away as Pennsylvania, uh, New York City, Ohio, uh, Toronto, uh, you know, you know, western part of Canada. Um, so we're already kind of like creating partnerships with sister, uh, sister destinations like the Niagara Falls uh, 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 Center over there, uh, Broderick Park, Friends of Broderick Park, uh, and all points in between to sort of create these linkages. We're even actually looking at trying to create a partnership in Ontario where we know uh, Harry Tubman. Mm. Once presided, her church is still there. So, uh, as you know, many freedom seekers yeah. found their way there. So, you, I think your question is a very important question. I just want your listeners to know this: that we are already doing those things. We have already seen great success. Now, once we start actually completing our our vision, summarize it quickly. Step mm-hmm. one is improve the facilities. Step two is promote the heck out of it. Promote the heck out of it. So the whole idea, Dave, is we don't just want people to come and visit these beautiful historic edifices. We want to keep them in the corridor to spend their dollars with their family, to enjoy restaurants or green space or nearby entertainment venues or activities that we'll be promoting, you know, once all this plan is in place. Right now we're working on the short term, which in between two to three years, we hope to see all this all, you know, happening already. That's Terry Alford. And we close today with Tisha Parker in Rooted in Love, honoring her grandmother by serving the poor. My grandparents always kind of drilled into us how, you know, we're put on this earth to help other people. We are here to grow and contribute to what 
essentially makes other people better and in turn then you're made better and you're fulfilled and you're whole so for me this was sort of a path that I wanted to take to kind of start like a redemption journey so to speak and then it kind of turned into I really love doing this and this is where my heart is where my passion is it's given my family a rebirth with our relationships and it was a way for us to kind of have our glue especially since it was based off of my grandmother and, you know, with her passing away right before our first event, it was a way for us to all kind of remain together. So it just motivates me to still build those partnerships and have like that piece of her since she's not here. You know, if you go to uh, the website, which is uh, rootedinloveinc.com, you can read the story. And it's a, it's a lovely story about your grandmother mm-hmm. uh, that she inspired this because mm-hmm. of the type of person she was for her community. Mm-hmm. Talk about your grandmother. What was her name? Louise. Louise. Oh, she was such a gem. She was the, you know, grandmother to every person on the street. She was the mom. She was a school teacher. So um, she worked in Buffalo Public Schools and she saw what it was like, you know, to have a lot of kids that didn't have a, you know, family system that was positive. And she was just that light when it came to dealing with each and every person. I mean, it was so surreal to like think about it now. And growing up, it was always normal. You know, she would have all of her former students or she would have random people that were homeless or didn't have any place to go, you know, that maybe didn't have parents. All of the holidays were filled with them coming, them being in her home, or we would show up and, you know, she would have a random person sleeping in her extra room because that's the type of person that she was. So it's just, it was such a beautiful way to cement her legacy and continue to get that out to people that, you know, that didn't know her to still experience her. Are we seeing, uh, does this take us back to a time then perhaps where a, a street, a neighborhood was maybe a little bit different than it is today that there could be these families together that were looking out for each other looking out for for the folks who um you know maybe needed a little help or maybe needed a lot of help yeah i mean i definitely think that her home is reminiscent of that i mean that was her legacy when she was alive and now us being located out of her home on riley street yep Mm -hmm. on riley street so we have you know families that were still over are still over there that were over there when she was alive um that it's just it's so cool to see like their generations now and how we've all grown up together how they still live over there and to see like her home still representing just being a place that was a safe haven for people i mean it it just only made sense to be located there have that as our main point it just made sense it's interesting because, you know, we really haven't even talked about what your organization actually does just yet. And uh, <laughs> but at the same time, I think you've already described it. Mm-hmm. You're, you're you're picking up where your grandmother left off in her community. Um, but you got you you know you, you know you're trying to help out homeless initially, mm-hmm. and then anybody who really needed help. Mm-hmm. Now you have a delivery van. You're delivering things, mm-hmm. which of course has become so important for a variety of reasons, mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, what I'm I'm curious about though is um, just how busy you became after May 14th. 
Man, it was it was truly nonstop. I mean, we had such an exceptional surge from Monday after the shootings all the way until the end of July. Like we're just now able to get our footing where we're able to organize again. We're able to well, you're not have just our... acting in the moment, trying yeah. to react in the moment. Yeah, because I feel like right after the shootings, it was so reactionary. We had so many pop ups that it was it was so exhausting, to be completely honest. It was like we're a small staff anyway, and a lot of my staff works full-time jobs. So it was so hard when it came to the balance because it put a lot on, you know, my mom, who is my COO, she is retired, but she was there every single day. If she wasn't there, I was there. And then, you know, we had the rest of our family and friends that work full-time that are coming over after they get out of work, and they're there until like 10 and 11 o'clock at night trying to help us sort, trying to help us just gain control. Because, I mean, there was so many donations coming in that we couldn't even get up the stairs. We couldn't get into our location. We couldn't even walk inside. You couldn't open the door the whole way. (laughs) Like, it was so much, and it was so extremely overwhelming. But now it's so manageable and so much positivity has come out of it. But at the same time, I think it still stands to reason that there's a lot of issues that haven't been addressed. So, And one of those issues is this, I mean, we can call it a lot of different things, but when, when the store, the top store was forced to close, mm-hmm. the words food desert, food apartheid mm-hmm. became prominent. That Absolutely. there are people in this neighborhood, if they don't have this store, they have no options. Did you see that? Did you see that at these pop-up uh, markets that you you guys were? Uh, uh, so we saw two different things. Okay. So the first thing I would definitely say is, yes, you do have that over there. You know, that is the only grocery store, but you have a huge amount of the population over there that already was not going to that grocery store okay. because they can't afford to shop in a grocery store. So they're doing their grocery shopping at corner stores or they're doing it at, you know, soup kitchens, food pantries or at Dollar Tree. You know, because that's where they're getting the most for their money. Okay. It's that was already an issue. And then to turn around and now you have the other side of it. You had a lot of people that did kind of take over take advantage of it. So it was people that maybe necessarily weren't in need that were taking it and then they were, you know, reselling it to the we people. We did hear about stories about that. They were true, huh? Yeah. yeah so it, it was very, very sad. But you had you also had the people that were so in need and it was so much desperation that they were going to every pop-up because they want to hoard it because they know they're not going to get it again. They know that after the media turns its back and, you know, everybody moves on, which you saw over there, you know, you had a huge media rush. And then after a lot of the funerals, all of that died down. So you have the true organizations that have been over there that are helping the people and now there's like a expectation that sometimes is making it hard for people to meet that need because now everything has kind of died down. Right. You're not stepping through pallets of produce to get into your office like Correct. you were for a couple of exactly. months Exactly. So you had that huge influx where, you know, you have donations every single day. You have, st- I mean, our Amazon wish list is linked to my house. I was on first name basis with the Amazon driver because he was coming Every day, and it was like 80, 90, 150 boxes being left in behind my gate. And now, if we get two a week, you know, it's 
we still receive donations because like we're fortunate and we we have the funding where we're able to you know purchase pe- according to people's needs if we you know don't have the items in stock and we receive such an excess where we're able to still meet the need but I think there's a lot of societal issues that really weren't addressed when it came to this and it it, so with us still being in the food desert and then the fact that people have the lack of transportation so they're not making it to these grocery stores anyway and then you still have the issue of most people cannot afford that grocery store or people still choose canned items over the fresh produce because if you're a lot of people don't know about double up food box or they don't know, you know, that they can get these fresh items. You know, it's it's still so much more expensive especially after the pandemic. Right. than it even was before the pandemic. So if they weren't paying for it before the pandemic, they're not spending their money on it now. I mean, a lot of our clients too, they're people that work every day. There's people that make way more money than me, but they can't afford to feed their families because they're paying, you know, over in rent Mm -hmm. or, you know, they may have five children. Well, you have five growing children and that's expensive. They're eating you out of house and home and you're just barely making enough to make ends meet. So our whole mission is to just offer that that fresh quality produce with our partnerships, you know, with Desiderios or with local farming, we want to offer the best of the best where it's free and it's for any and everyone. It's no income guidelines. We're just taking basic information so we can use that for our records when it comes to the grants. But we're pushing the fresh items. We're helping with, you know, hygiene, with household items. So those are the most expensive things on someone's grocery list. If the only thing they have to do is go to the store and get meats, you know, that's right. saving them so much money and they can come every single week. It just it's such a a wonderful opportunity for people that really find themselves in need. Like my my grandmother fed her seven children off of soup kitchens. So my family knows what it's like to have that struggle where you may not know where you're getting your next meal. Like we were the kids that had hand me downs. They had hand-me-downs. You know, my mother didn't have anything new until she was an adult. So it's it's such an interesting perspective when it comes to how we deal with people and how we approach, especially our clients. When you were talking about, and if you don't mind expanding, mm-hmm. um, about some of the stories of the people who were coming or are coming to these pop-up markets, are you hearing stories? I mean, obviously not everybody's probably going to share everything that they have about their issues, but what kind of stories are you hearing about? What what are the circumstances that some of these folks are going through? I mean, some people just, life hits them. Like we have people coming to us because they lost their jobs after the pandemic and they maybe have taken a new job, but they work way less hours or they make less money, you know, or they can't even make it to a store because of the hours that they do work. You know, there's families that they just have so many people there was a huge 
uptick in how many seniors were servicing. Hmm. Seniors that may be living on a fixed income and they turned around and now they have custody or they're, you know, not legal custody, but they have custody of their grandchildren or great grandchildren because of their family circumstances. So they can't even afford to feed the kids because they didn't intend on having them anyway, you know? So we have a lot of grandparents. I mean, one specific family I think of, like, she has 12 grandkids now that she feeds. And she's like... 12 grandchildren. 12 grandchildren. It's insane to me. But she's like, you know, we're on a fixed income, me and my husband. Like, we can't even afford to feed ourselves. And now we're paying rent. And now we have these kids. Like... You know, they need help with clothes, so we'll send them. We used to take clothes, but now we send them to a partner of ours to get the clothes. Um, If they need furnitures, we have referral agencies for that. So if they need things, like, we have places to send them to, but some people are just a victim of circumstance. Like, who are we to judge? Because you never know. That can be any of us. Like, we could lose our jobs, and we may find ourselves needing help. So how embarrassing is it, you know— to have to go to an agency in general to already not be able to feed your family. And then, you know, you have to present your income guidelines and you t- you're you told like, oh, no, you make a little bit too much. So we can't help you like and you're turning them away. Right. It's just such a sad, sad case. And I don't think a lot of people understand that. Um, your grandmother would have understood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting also about her end of life mm-hmm. and the start of your organization. It's quite the, you can call it a lot of different things. I mean, coincidence doesn't, uh, mm-hmm. I don't think, uh, equal that, but why don't you tell the story? So my, my grandmother, um, she was diagnosed with dementia and she became very quickly nonverbal. Um, things were really spiraling downhill where she had to be moved from her home into a nursing, nursing home. And, um, when I started Rooted, it was just something that we were already doing together. You know, I we always knew people that maybe needed help. So, okay, I coupon a lot. Let me go and give these canned goods or I'll give away my furniture. I swore I was moving out of my parents' house for like six years before I actually did because <laughs> I kept buying stuff and it was just in their house. But, you know, you just meet people that just may need it a little bit more and – you know, it just was such a wonderful opportunity when I incorporated Rooted. I, I went down. I was, like, running right to her nursing home. And I got there, and I'm, like, telling her. I'm showing her the paperwork. And then she says, good job. Hmm. <laughs> She's like, this is wonderful, you know. And she never spoke again, but she passed away right before our first event. And it was it was such a, a weird moment for our family because we had spent – The summer, you know, getting everything together, we got the house together, we had all these intentions, you know, oh, we're going to do this first and we're going to do that first and how quickly things change and align how they're supposed to. You know, it may not be where it's giving up on the dream, but maybe it's just like timing it better. Maybe it's a later in life. And um, when we got to the point where she had passed away, we were let's cancel this event. We don't need to do it. And I mean, we always talk about when we sit around my family's together, like, oh, we're so glad we we didn't. Right. Because that first event, I mean, we had a community uh, Thanksgiving dinner. Hmm. And 
So how we used to do it was we would make all the food. So we have four households and we're baking everything. We're making mac and cheese. I mean, it's a full spread. And we make enough to feed about 400, 500 people. And it would take us days. And the first event fed 347 people where they were not only able to have a meal there, but a lot of them were able to take stuff to go. And I remember being, I mean, we were crying at the event because it was just so moving to have so many people there. And there were so many people that were homeless that actually knew my grandmother. And when she first started with her dementia, she would wander. So um, they were the ones that would find her. (laughs) So it just was, she was an avid bus rider. So she would go and take the bus, but she would get lost, you know, because she was kind of losing it slowly at first. And they were those people that led her back home and always knew where to go and what to say to her to calm her down. So it was just full circle to see them come to us now. And they're sitting at this Thanksgiving dinner and they're sharing their stories a lot of them we had seen because she always had homeless people in her house. Right. So um, it w- it was just such a jaw-dropping moment, you know, for our, our family. And it's something that is so pure and sticks with us. This question came to me as you were talking. Um, these efforts and this, uh, this, this spirit. Mm-hmm. Is it something that was always there inside the black community here in Buffalo? Or is it is, – and is it just getting – focused upon right now? I think it was there. I think it's definitely heightened now because of that negative situation having such a racial component. So I think, you know, it, it, it leaves a lot of people feeling uneasy, but I think it's a wonderful time for especially minority organizations to really like band together for the the community like a lot of people want to see that representation a lot of them want to be involved they want to have that trust with the organizations I mean I can truly say like the people that come to us like I know they trust us I know that they love that we don't treat them with judgment we're anonymous like we don't have you know huge sign it's not a arrows pointing outside of our location so I think having that trust within the community and with the community it's allowing so much more positivity to flow at least on our end i'm i know there are you know negative experiences but i don't even want to okay focus on that because it's you know it's just where does that get us you know it's just sometimes things don't work and you move on you know uh, are there the lessons in that though that 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 that, that are worth mentioning uh, that you know I think there's huge lessons. I think there's huge lessons in, you know, being intentional with who you're aligning with. I think there's huge lessons in being intentional with what you're putting out to the world, especially with this platform right now. I think there's, you know, always going to be a negative stance on every situation. But I think everything that's already come from it, like that situation was so negative with the shootings that... For us, like, even when we were so stressed, I was just like, but we have to do this. Like, we don't even have a choice. We have to. We have to do it for our clients. We have to do it for our people. Like, I 
I mean, even I have family members that come to us that need help. There's no shame in asking for help. And I think, you know, focusing our efforts on the positive where it leads to the betterment of even communication when it comes to organizations working together or when it comes to us in the community. We just have to do better for each other. And that's regardless of race. We we just have to. Tisha Parker with Jay Moran. Producers Picks brings you highlights of our weekday discussion program, Buffalo, What's Next? You can listen on the WBFO app or live each morning at 10. Hear the replay each weeknight at 9 or listen on demand at WBFO.org. If you don't want to miss an episode, you can subscribe as a podcast or use the NPR One app. I'm Angelie Preston. Thanks for listening.